Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. I am Andre Krenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation in my research. And with me is my co-host. I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. And we actually, we skipped recording last week because there wasn't too much to talk about. But this week, there turned out to be a lot to tackle. So in this episode, we're going to tackle some pretty interesting stories. And we're just going to dive straight in with our first one. And we can go ahead and begin with our first couple of articles. Uh, the first one being wrongfully accused by an algorithm from New York Times. And also there's a related one from Quartz titled, The Little Known AI Firms Whose Facial Recognition Tech Led to a False Arrest. And the whole story is about this person named Robert Julian Borshak William, who was arrested wrongfully based on... Uh, uh, facial recognition match from some software that incorrectly identified him as someone else who was seen uh, around a store from which uh, some watches were stolen. And uh, the short version is he was arrested, handcuffed, uh, taken to the station, uh, interrogated primarily or pretty much entirely based on this uh, match from the software. And there was one with witness, but they actually didn't see the whole thing go down. It was essentially just a facial recognition software, uh, which uh, has now been covered and yeah, summarized in these major outlets. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to go into here. So for instance, one of the things that strikes me is um, the company that sold this technology to the police department, uh, DataWorks Plus, actually first hasn't developed the facial recognition software. It bought it from some other companies. And secondly, actually doesn't officially test for the accuracy of the software. So they, these, uh, these stories uh, actually detail how um, the engineers at DataWorks Plus kind of try out the software, but they don't release specific accuracy things or things that you would typically see in AI publications. So it seems that standards are quite lux, and uh, it has led now to at least one, possibly more of these very, very problematic arrests. Uh, Sharon, does anything kind of jump out at you from some of the details in these stories? Uh, yes, I found it quite uh, alarming and also a little bit um, dystopic. So, uh, first of all, uh, regarding the story, uh, the Detroit police policy explicitly forbids officers from actually making arrests based only on facial recognition matches. But there's kind of a loophole here. So after DataWorks Plus, uh, that program identified Williams, uh, the officers put his picture in um, a photo array, so a set of many different photos, and presented it to a store security guard. Uh, and this security guard did not witness the theft at all. 
and had only seen the same grainy surveillance footage the police had. And the guard picked Williams out of uh, the photo array, the lineup of different photos. And that was actually enough for an arrest warrant. Uh, so even though we can make, cannot make arrests based on just facial, facial recognition matches, if there's a human in the loop, but the the rest of the system with the human in the loop is feels slightly broken or a little bit like a loophole, that is still allowed for making an arrest. And what feels almost dystopic about the whole thing is that then um, two officers got out of their police cars and actually handcuffed Mr. Williams on his front lawn in front of his wife and two young daughters. Uh, and the police actually wouldn't say why he was being arrested and only showing him a piece of paper with his photo and the words felony warrant and larceny. And so that that's quite dystopic. I feel like uh you just don't know why you're being arrested. You're getting arrested. It wasn't you. And it was because someone agreed with a facial recognition uh, model. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. We it, it, The whole story is laid out quite well in the New York Times piece. And it is quite troubling to hear uh, what uh, Mr. Williams had to go through. There was some other interesting detail of like, he had to miss work for the first time in four years when he was making, uh, has missed work for four years. So it's quite troubling. And obviously this shows kind of the human impact of using algorithms badly. And uh, to add to your point of, uh, they're not supposed to, arrest people solely based on a match. Actually, another uh, point made in this article is when this match was made and the file with it was sort of passed along, in it, in the file that had the results from the software, it was actually stated that this document is not a positive identification. It is an investigative lead only and is not probable cause for arrest. And furthermore, and uh, like later on, it was also shown that Mr. Williams had an alibi. He posted to Instagram on the day that this robbery was supposed to happen. So this this really showcases that over relying on an algorithm and not checking the results and basically doing the work here quite laxly. Uh, was all around very bad and clearly standards should be higher. Definitely. And I think in general, these systems are uh, less accurate on many different minorities. So in a federal study of over a hundred facial recognition systems, um, they found that they were very, very biased and actually falsely identifying African-American and Asian faces 10 times to a hundred times more uh, than Caucasian faces. And that means, that means misidentification, essentially. That means falsely accusing people much, much more, orders of magnitude more, uh, when they're of a different ethnicity. So uh, that that's quite concerning. Definitely. And I suppose this uh, obviously relates to the news we discussed before about Amazon and IBM and Microsoft all suspending sales of facial recognition software to police departments. And uh, this really speaks as to why until we can sort of know that police departments can use it responsibly 
it might be doing more harm than good, uh, especially as the technology itself is flawed and needs to be used for care, which was obviously not the case here. But uh, at least there is a sliver of good news in all this in that the case was thrown out and uh, also that this uh, police uh, department in Detroit said that they switched their policy to only use a facial recognition uh, software in cases involving violent crimes. So this sort of really erroneous, really ridiculous case uh, should not happen again but it is problematic that it happened in the first place. That definitely helps with reducing the amount of reliance um, and only using it for really intense crimes. Though for those crimes, I guess if you're falsely accused, it's even worse uh, in a sense, but um, I guess it would be even more of a dire threat to society at large or to the safety of, of, um, of those around you. So, I think that is more reasonable. For sure. Yeah. This makes you actually think more also on all this conversation we've had about research practices and AI and, uh, for instance, the broader impact statement uh, in uh, one of our conferences. I suppose one case you could make and people have been making is as it becomes the norm for AI researchers to be more mindful about uh, how the algorithm should be used, that will percolate up through actual deployments of AI, actual industry applications, sort of a cultural change, so that um, those who develop it take more responsibility about how it's used. And uh, yeah, this, I think, is a very concrete example of how it can be misused and how uh, hopefully the company selling the technology can do or learn from it to make sure others don't uh, use it in this kind of incorrect way. Right. I definitely think it needs to be thought about or reflected on at all levels of use and development. Um, and yeah, I think it definitely needs to at least be present if not started or started by researchers and for researchers to feel responsible as well. Uh, it definitely makes me think of uh, one computer vision researcher, Joseph Redman, who decided to leave uh, computer vision research despite loving it and despite being very successful at it because of uh, bad downstream uses he's seen. And he's probably thinking about things like this um, as well. Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a very uh, appropriate example. And then that topic, actually, we can move on to our second story, which is quite relevant to this question of researchers and how they deal with issues uh, with their technology. Uh, so the article we are basing this on is titled, What a Machine Learning Tool That Turns Obama White Can and Can't Tell Us About AI Bias. And this is from The Verge. And in short, the whole story was about a demo of a model, of an AI model titled Pulse, that essentially enhances photos. So it takes a low resolution photo and makes it higher resolution and gives it more pixels. And their particular demo was on faces. So you give it a low resolution image of a face and you get a higher resolution sort of nice and crisp photo. And when this demo was uh, released, uh, very quickly 
someone on Twitter pointed out that if you feed it a low resolution photo of Obama, you get a photo of a white person as the output. And then there were more examples that followed that showed that this model in general seemed to have a bias to output male and white people, even on given lower resolution images of colored people. So this led to a lot of discussion. Uh, it also led to the authors of a paper themselves addressing it via comment on their GitHub and also on the paper itself. And yeah, it's been kind of a pretty big story within the AI community for sure, and even expanded beyond the AI community to be covered in these uh, popular media outlets. Uh, I wonder, Sharon, how much have you followed this whole thing and yeah, what kind of struck you about it as it was happening? I think, uh, so I, I've been following it quite a bit as many researchers in AI have been this past week. Uh, it kind of blew up on Twitter when uh, Jan LeCun, Facebook's chief AI scientist, uh, became kind of a flashpoint for these conversations after he tweeted a response to that uh, image of Obama, pixelated Obama turning white uh, and saying that, quote, ML systems are biased when data is biased. And then adding uh, that this sort of bias is a far more serious problem in, quote, a deployed product than in an academic paper. Uh, and the implication of this, um, as it was interpreted by, by many people, uh, was uh, essentially, let's not worry too much about this particular example. We should worry more about deployments. We should worry more about uh, the data as opposed to the actual system. Um, and I think people... Uh, have have basically been thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't think of these as separate components. We should think about, you know, things in an academic paper flowing directly into deployment. Um, and if we don't think about it now, we won't think about it then, uh, as well as data being highly tied to ML systems and how we essentially evaluate these systems and select the quote-unquote best models based on data that's probably biased. Uh, yeah, I, I also agree that especially this topic of whether AI researchers should be worried about this sort of thing happening, uh, that was a big part of the discussion. And I tend to agree that we shouldn't dismiss uh, the issue of this being uh, a problem with uh, the academic paper. Although Yenakun also uh, clarified later that he does agree that it's important for researchers to set proper norms. So uh, much of the problem ultimately was also that m this whole conversation was being had on Twitter in these sort of bite-sized comments that uh, for perhaps a somewhat nuanced topic uh, were not ideal. And uh, people, I, in my opinion, were often talking past each other and uh, misunderstanding each other. And um, it sort of turned it into a mess, really. So, Are you suggesting Twitter's not the best place to have discussions? <laughs> at least, you know, we've I had really some good ones in the so. AI community, but uh, it's definitely a better place for memes and, you know, ranting about your coffee being cold and something inconsequential like that, rather than uh, talking about the nature of bias in machine learning systems and accountability for problems in AI models, that's for sure. Um, but on the other hand, I do think that 
it was still good that you know the model the problem was noticed people realized this was a problem and the sort of whole community reflected a bit more on yet another example of this sort of thing being present in a research paper and uh yeah many people kind of reiterated that they do think we as a community should be more serious about it and the researchers themselves i think responded quite well by amending their paper and addressing the issue of bias and uh kind of following some advice from some of the leading researchers in this area on how to tackle uh, these kinds of issues in particular I, what they did was add a whole section uh, to discuss the bias in the model. So this is one of the recommended best practices from Margaret Mitchell originally, which is essentially to just have a section in your paper addressing the ethical implications or considerations of your model. And to sort of point out any limitations, point out why it might be happening, uh, and make it sort of very clear and explicit what's happening. Yeah, they did not actually change the model. They addressed... Uh, this issue of a model in the paper. And they also did that by including uh, what's known as a model card in the appendix. So some researchers, including Margaret Mitchell and uh, Tim Jebru, suggested this idea of essentially having a one-page summary of your model that includes uh, kind of a summarized version of the data set you use, uh, how it was trained, the objective, and also any potential biases or issues and warnings about how it should be used. And they proposed AI researchers could adopt this as a practice to make sure that any models that we do release, the at least the caveats are there and uh, are available for people to be aware of as they use the algorithms. So I think, yeah, those two uh, additions to the paper were well done and hopefully become more of a norm as people see these sorts of things happen. Yeah, that's fantastic that they then amended the paper to include that text. Uh, I think that's really important. I guess the next step is to see the model actually get updated a little bit towards the right direction, uh, though it might be tough since uh, the work itself, um, I don't think it, it depends a lot on a prior work called StyleGAN. So uh, they would have to update that as well, I think. Yeah, and I uh, suppose that also kind of leads to a, another point might be that if the offers of style gain made this very explicit and made a point to kind of warn people that this GAN might be biased uh, when it's generating outputs, perhaps this would percolate and this would have been also noted in this paper in the first place, as opposed to as a reaction. So um, yeah, maybe this is a good learning opportunity for the community uh, and how to sort of be more mindful about these sorts of possibilities. Okay, and our next article is from The Verge titled, AI experts say research into algorithms that claim to predict criminality must end. And there's an adjacent article in TechCrunch uh, also about this topic titled AI researchers condemn predictive crime software citing racial bias and flawed methods. 
So at a high level, uh, a coalition of AI researchers, data scientists, and sociologists uh, have called on the academic world to stop publishing studies that claim to predict uh, a person's criminality just using algorithms trained on data, using uh, like facial scans and criminal statistics. And there was an open letter, it was called Abolish the Hashtag Tech to Prison Pipeline. And this was written up by the Coalition for Critical Technology. Uh, and this is largely in response to uh, the world's largest publisher of academic books called Springer uh, that was planning to publish a study doing just that, using uh, algorithms trained on uh, facial recognition data and statistics to predict someone's uh, chance of going to prison. And the letter has been signed by 1,700 experts, uh, and it basically asks Springer to not to refrain from publishing that piece of work. And this piece of work, which is titled A Deep Neural Network Model to Predict Criminality Using Image Processing, uh, was using facial recognition systems uh, to predict whether someone was likely to become a criminal and said it had a 80% accuracy and also claimed no racial bias. And the press release for that has now been deleted and Springer uh, went on to do, I suppose, further peer review uh, and then ultimately rejected it in response uh, to this letter. Yeah, so quite an extreme example of bad AI research with ethical quagmires, uh, wouldn't you say, Sharon? No racial bias is quite the claim to make. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's, there's been a lot of a lot of kind of anger at this whole thing. Uh, it's not the first time that similar kinds of papers have been attempted in the last decade even. So this is essentially neophrenology, trying to uh, claim people have certain characteristics based only on their face um, structure. And uh, even uh, we, we can't get that much into it, but of course there's many ethical problems with this sort of research, not least of which that it's simply bad science. It just doesn't actually work. There's always blatant flaws in the execution. And uh, that was certainly also the case here. So um, I guess the good news is the reply was swift and the community was quite determined in uh, standing behind this letter to uh, oppose this uh, paper. Right, definitely. And in the letter, uh, something that I thought was pretty poignant was, quote, if machine learning is to bring about the quote unquote social good touted in grant proposals and press releases, then researchers in the space must actively reflect on the power structures and the attendant op oppressions that make their work, po work possible. Yeah, indeed. So uh, hopefully this is another case where we as a community are reminded of needing to actually consider the ethics of our research and the sort of uh, implications of it uh, besides the other examples we just discussed. So I guess we have a bit of a theme going so far. There's definitely a theme going on here. 
and I suppose our next article has a bit to do with this all and may actually also threaten the diversity in AI research. And the article uh, is titled, uh, Trump's freeze on new visas could threaten U.S. dominance in AI. So Trump's... Trump decided to uh, suspend a variety of work visas, and that's left many policy analysts worried about what that could mean for the U.S. long-term innovation uh, plans. And so, in particular, uh, the H-1B visa was suspended, and this is a three-year work visa granted to foreign workers in specialty fields. And one of the primary channels for highly skilled tech workers uh, to join the U.S. workforce. And especially large tech companies have been using this to recruit uh, people from uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, into critical technology areas such as AI. So the majority of U.S.'s wealth of AI talent actually does come from abroad, not from within. And a recent analysis from the think tank Macro Polo found that 69% of AI researchers working at U.S. institutions received their undergraduate degrees from outside of the U.S. And that two-thirds of graduate students in the U.S.'s top AI-related PhD programs are also international and there are roughly 80% of them staying five years after graduation. So staying in the U.S., uh, many of them staying in the U.S. after they graduate. Yeah, uh, that number, I think, is pretty impressive. Two-thirds of graduate students in the U.S. top AI-related PhD programs are international. Uh, but at the same time, working at Stanford, I think we can attest it, it's true. I mean, it's, there's a huge number of international PhD students working on AI uh, among us. And certainly we collaborate with many such people um, every, you know, every day or every week. I saw a pretty poignant uh image that one professor took of her lab, uh, an AI lab, and uh, it was basically she crossed out everyone's faces but hers and said, this is what my lab would look like uh, under Trump's program now. And it just means everyone is coming from outside of the U.S. except for her. Yeah, it's, it's very poignant. Actually, uh, I believe my family... We moved here, what, like 15 years ago. And originally it was my dad uh, got an H-1B visa because he was a tech worker. So, yeah, I also sympathize with many other people in the AI community who expressed concern about this direction and this move and what it means for AI and our field as a whole. And especially considering we all know so many people who have made use of these programs. It's, it's quite concerning. So, uh, yeah, hopefully the outcry from the AI community, and I believe the tech community more broadly on this issue will have some effect, and, and hopefully this is a temporary suspension, and it will not leave uh, you know, such a big issue uh, for the AI field if it doesn't come back. I definitely hope it's temporary uh, for many reasons. And it's also, I don't think, a very good national strategy. Uh, I do think that it potentially has uh, the one reason might be for his reelection to happen. And he wants people on his side uh, to feel like he's taking actions towards that end. So, so we'll see. 
so with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure, Be sure to tune to in, in next week. Next week.